Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. God's grace here is in full display in all of its glorious wonders in today's passage in Galatians. Paul sets the table perfectly in his defense of the gospel to the churches of Galatia. As we saw in last week's message, Paul was engaged in a battle for the gospel in this letter. He is writing to counter the false teaching of the Judaizers who were undermining the central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. The Judaizers were Jews who were spreading the dangerous teachings that Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to all of the Mosaic law before they become Christians, specifically the Mosaic law of circumcision. Shocked by the Galatians' openness to this damning heresy, Paul wrote this letter to defend justification by faith. And we studied that last week. If you'd like to hear that, it is on the website, or you can go to iTunes and uh, go, or type in Walking by Faith. Is that what it's, Walking in Faith? In Faith. And you can find that. He wants to warn these churches of the dire consequence of abandoning this essential doctrine that we are saved or made right with God by the obedience of Christ. Galatians is the only epistle that Paul writes that does not contain a commendation for its readers. This is an obvious omission that reflects how urgently Paul felt about confronting the defection and defending the essential doctrine of justification. Paul is going to begin his letter by declaring that everything that we have and what we do is attributed to the wonderful grace of God. So in Galatians chapter 1, let's read those first five verses. It is in your Bible, and I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. If you are in need of one, please let us know, and we'll make sure that you have one. We have plenty that we'd like to give you, so you can take that home. But it's also going to be on the monitor also. As we read, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, God, uh, to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, I just want to thank Paul for this letter. Thank you for using him and for the Holy Spirit who brings into us what he's trying to write here. And I pray that you'd be with me as I speak. Let me be clear. clear. Lord, I pray that you would bless the study, and I pray that you bless the work put into it, and that you would fill what's lacking in it so that it may glorify you. May your Holy Spirit take this word to it that we're going to hear this morning, and may it take it and may it apply it to our lives. May it find deep root in the soils of our heart. May it find root and may it grow a hundredfold. And Lord, may we respond in faith to what you share with us this morning. In the name of your Son, again we pray. Amen. 
The author is the Apostle Paul, as we see in the beginning. And he begins by stating his authority as an apostle of God. Now, this is something that's uh, normally done. Paul does this quite a bit. He regularly affirms his apostolic uh, authority at the beginning of his letters. And in this particular case, he does so in the defense of his ministry, understanding what the problem is. Interestingly, he also mentions the brothers who are with me. Did you catch that in that, in that passage? As he wants to remind them that there are others who concur with what he's about to write in the defense of the gospel. It's important to Paul that his readers know that he's not just defending his own opinion, his own agenda, or just his own ministry, but that as an apostle of God, he's fulfilling the sacred calling of God on his life, and he is only delivering all that which he also received from Christ, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Now, the recipients of this letter, of course, are the churches of Galatia. We were introduced to those churches in Acts chapter 13 and 14 that we looked at last week. Those were the churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and where God worked very mightily in those churches. And by the way, if you have not read that, please read Acts 13 and 14, as that really gives us a good background of what we're going to tackle here in this book. Though Paul does not give them a commendation, he does write a prayer wish of grace and peace as he reminds them of the benefits of God's wonderful grace. Now we need to remember, Paul is writing to combat a very serious issue in the churches. Paul and Barnabas had spent their first missionary trip establishing these churches by presenting the gospel, discipling by pouring out their lives with them, and then leaving as they ordained elders to continue the work. However, after some time, Paul receives word in some manner, whether it was through uh, personal testimony or a letter, some way that there was some teaching of the Judaizers that had worked their way in these churches and was starting to destroy the very fabric and foundation of what he and Barnabas had built. And the message of the gospel is at stake. And this is an issue, by the way. And this is what's important because this same issue is still under attack in churches today. And we'll look more about that next week. But this is an issue not to be taken lightly. Paul had wrote to the Romans that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for it is in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as written, the just shall live by faith. And so he wants to go to the Galatians and he wants to remind them of that fact. And also not only in that, but this faith in which we receive salvation is a gift from God. As he wrote to the church of Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing or not by works. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Many times when we think of that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, very famous portion of scripture, we think salvation is a gift of God. And that's true. But really what that's talking about, it's salvation by faith is a gift from God. 
So Paul intends to remind them now how God's grace extends to our life, to our calling, and even our day-to-day activities. So I want to share with you very quickly four observations in which in this introduction, he lists four gifts from God. Four gifts from God. The first one is Paul's calling. Paul's calling. Now we're going to look at a little bit more about this in about a week or two. But what we're seeing here is Paul has a divine appointment and a divine commission from God. And that means that the gospel he proclaims is authoritative and true. Paul reminds him, listen, I am not an apostle by someone else's hand. And remember, he might remember the story of how he was persecuting the church. And it was on the road to Damascus that he had a personal, face-to-face revelation from God. And he received the gospel, not from Peter and from Paul, but from the very hands of Christ through the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a little bit as he goes through his his, uh, biography. But Paul's calling is not from man, but it is from God. And so it's not from man, but God. His calling is a gift. The second thing that we'll see is grace and peace. In other words, how can we stand before a holy God? It's interesting that he gives them these two things because in and of itself, how can the Galatians ever stand before a holy God in grace and peace? Even his typical greeting is attacking the Judaizers' legalistic system. If salvation is by works, as they claim, it's not of grace and cannot result in peace since no one can be sure he has enough good works to be internally secure. (coughs) Grace is a free mercy that's lavished on all who believe in Jesus. Grace is God's loyal love. And peace comes from God's grace. You might recall Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For you and I, we see this wish. He wishes them peace and grace, knowing that the only way they could ever receive peace and grace is from God. You and I many times will give a greeting and many times it just really doesn't mean anything. We, we just throw it out. But Paul does not just throw out these types of things. The Holy Spirit doesn't write things without thinking. There's a purpose behind it. And he wants to share with them, you have peace now. You have grace and that comes from God. The third gift from God we see is the freedom from penalty of sin in this age to come. Romans 6.23 tells us For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ through Jesus our Lord. As he tells them, grace to you and peace from God God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, who gave himself from our sins to deliver us from from the present evil age according to the will of God. So you and I are free from the penalty of sin, not only in today, but also in the age to come. But then he also shares with them the fourth gift, and that's the freedom from the power of sin in this age. Jesus raised from the dead signifies that that new age has dawned. Therefore, do not go back in redemptive history by resurrection, the Mosaic covenant which Jesus fulfilled and replaced. Another, he reminded them that the Mosaic law had its place, but no longer is it needed to fulfill what God has said. The Mosaic law, in fact, could not do what God required. He required perfection. 
but only Jesus was able to provide what God required. And so in there he says, my calling, my very wish for you to have peace and grace and the fact that you have freedom from the penalty of the sin and you have freedom from sin in this present age, he says, that is grace from God. That's the wonderful grace. You and I need to be reminded of that. The fact that we're here today breathing this air, able to come and share uh, our, our, our good wishes towards each other comes from the grace of God. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You and I must remain vigilant, especially in regard to the gospel. We need to trust Christ. And this is where he's going with the Galatians. He said, you've easily, so quickly, you've moved away from that which is wonderful. And we do the same thing. There's many times those of us, we, we desire to follow Christ and we make that decision and then we find ourselves on the gun hole until eventually you find ourselves struggling with sin, fighting things, and we forget the wonderful gifts from God. It's like a man who marries the bride of his dreams only to find himself going back to all the things he was before. He forgets what manner of creature he is. You and I need to be careful. We need to be vigilant in this present age. This is a difficult age. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven tells us that this age is at a close, or is at a close. We need to remember that God's grace abides on us here this morning. I want to share with you something here that's very important for us to understand. That this grace here is different. This grace here that he's given to the Galatians, that he's reminding them of what we have, is not a grace that's given to everyone. And I want to share with you, there is a grace in which everyone receives. We call it common grace. Common grace is very simple, something that God gives to everyone. He gives us and puts everyone in a world, in a universe that sustains life. He allows all of us to breathe and to function. Our bodies work. That is common grace. The common grace in which he has put his world and revealed himself is common grace. Common grace is the fact that we can look at the handiwork of God and we can look at it and it points and reveals that there is something greater than ourselves, but it is not, but it does not save. It's not effective in drawing us fully to God. So there's a common grace. People say, well, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, because it's common grace. That grace is common to everyone. But there is a different type of grace here. There's a grace here that not everyone receives, and that's the wonderful grace that Paul speaks of in the gospel. That is a grace that is effectively draws us to God. You say, wait a second, doesn't everyone get to go to heaven? Doesn't everyone get drawn to God? Doesn't everyone get saved? No, it doesn't. I know that's a popular thought. I know that is a wishful thinking for many, 
And to be honest, I wish that was true in some cases. I don't like to think about hell. I don't like to think about anyone going to hell. I don't think anyone being lost. But yet we need to recognize Scripture reveals to us that not all will have that. And so that's the importance and the defense of the gospel that he's setting up here this morning. And you and I need to know the difference between a common grace that all receive and the saving grace. We see in Romans 1 that the common grace does not lead people to the Savior. For they can see the things of God, but yet they still reject them. You and I know that as we see these intellectuals and these scientists and others who look at the handiwork of God, look into the very workings of God, but yet reject Him still. There is a saving grace. And there's three facts that I want you to know this morning about saving grace. The first one's already up there for you. And it's in verses 3 and 4 of Galatians. If you have your Bible, go back to it. Because I want to read that, and I didn't put that on the screen. So 3 and 4, let's just read that. It says, Grace to you and peace from God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Three facts. The first one, as we just saw, is that grace comes from the will of God. We see that in verse 1 and 4b. The New Testament repeatedly establishes the fact that the believer's righteous standing before God is not based on good works that he or she has done. But it's only on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the works of Christ alone. And so we must understand that the difference between common grace and saving grace, the wonderful grace of God that we're sharing here, the gospel comes from the will of God, not the will of man. It's not something that I can conjure up myself, whether in my will or my faith or just trying to do good works. Ephesians chapter 1, it's there in your, on, the, on the screen, on your monitors. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoptions of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of what? Of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. The saving grace of God comes from the will of God, not from something within us, and it's not something, I'm, I'm sorry, that I can give you myself. I could put holy water in this bottle right here, and I could start spraying you all with it, but it will do no good. It cannot protect you from a zombie attack, and it will not take care of vampire bites. It has no power other than to quench my thirst. But grace comes from the will of God, not through any sacrament, not through any blessing from man, but only from the will of God. The second point that you and I also have to understand, and this is where it gets difficult, and that's point number two, is grace, saving grace, comes to those chosen by God. Now we saw that in this last verse, 
where it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's a doctrine called election. Now he speaks more about this in the book of Ephesians. We're only getting a glimmer of the look here. But I do want to tackle it because that's the, the wonderful thing about God's grace. And you'll see that there's a term that most of us do not like. Most of us people, we start to put up our crosses when we hear this term. But it is a doctrinal term and is a term that God has revealed to us. And that is of election. You see, election is an act of God before creation. So when you turn to Genesis 1-1 and you say, in the beginning, God created, you know that that was not his first work in this present age or the age prior. For he says before the creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any unforeseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. In other words, what you and I have to understand is that election is not only from God, but it's unconditional. In other words, it's not conditioned on something that I did. Some of us would say, well, yeah, God chose me because he could look through the annals of history and he would see that I would choose him or that there was something about me that was choosable. Now, what Scripture tells us. It tells us that before any of us were born, before the creation of the world, he chose some. In other words, I was in his mind before in the beginning. And that, tell you, is the wonderful grace and power of the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, verses 48, Luke writes, And when the Gentiles heard this, speaking of the gospel, they were glad and glorified the word of God, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It's significant that Luke mentions the fact of election almost in passing. You see, I didn't see the word election. It finds itself in the word ordained. Those that God ordained or decided to eternal life. As if that's the normal uh, concurrence when the gospel was preached. How many people believed? As many as were ordained to eternal life. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Romans. We'll be in Romans again. It's interesting that we're finding most of Galatians in the book of Romans. But as we said, Galatians really is a little, is little Romans. Romans chapter 8. Famous passage of scripture. All of you know it. We've seen it many, many times. But it's found in Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 28. He writes, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he also justified, he also glorified. Now you see all those five words, and you say, what in the world does those mean? Well, let me go ahead and read it back to you in, in, in the Rob Carrington version. For what he says, those who he chose before the beginning of time, he will call to himself. And those who will call to himself, he will make them justified, make them right before God. And those who we make right for God, he will make them right in eternity. That's what glorified means. It means not this life, but in the next life. What we see here is the wonderful grace of God in election. Paul in his letter to the Romans 
when talking about God choosing Jacob and not Esau, speaking of those two twins, he says it was not because of anything that Jacob or Esau had done, but simply in order that God's purpose of election might continue. You're in Romans 8, turn to Romans 9. It might be a page, it might be across the page. Romans chapter 9. Let's look what he says in verse 11. This is Paul through the Holy Spirit. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, speaking of Rebecca, the elder will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, using a bit of hyperbole to share how much his love is and what his saving grace is. In other words, in those times, the elder would be the one who would receive the birthright and receive all the blessings. The youngest son really received nothing, really, in those times. And as those two twins were fighting each other, Esau winds up being born. Uh, are they? They're twins, right? Am I uh, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting my stories a little bit confused here. Esau is born, but yet God says, Jacob, the younger, is the one who I've chosen. And you and I understand that. Even though our hearts and our initial reaction is, I don't like election, you and I understand it. Abraham was chosen out of all the nations. Was Abraham a good man? He was an idol worshiper. But God chose Abraham out of everyone to be a son. Did God, so Abraham has two children, Ishmael and Isaac, who was first? Ishmael, who was second? Isaac, which one did God choose? Isaac, we see it in the same thing, Esau, Jacob, God chooses Jacob. And then all the, he goes on, out of all his children, who does he choose to be his king? David, so on and so forth. And he chooses a people, Israel. So even though we cringe at that thought, the Bible teaches it and typifies it and, and shadows it throughout Scripture. So grace comes from the will of God, and grace comes to those that are chosen by God. So Paul is saying here, you need to understand the gospel. It is so wonderful, for God did not have to choose you. There was nothing about you that was so special, that stood out before God, that God says, oh, I've got to have that. This is not a fantasy spiritual league where he looks up your stats and he trades with Satan and says, hey, what do you got for a Dustin? I'll give you two Sarahs. Doesn't work. It'd probably be the other way. It doesn't work that way. But many times we live our lives and we have pastors and churches who are preaching this and teaching this. They do not understand the wonderful gospel of God. Grace comes to those that are chosen by God, which leads us to the third wonderful grace of saving grace. Saving grace comes not through me, not through my good works. It doesn't come through my lineage because my grandmother was a Christian. It doesn't come because I was baptized as a little child or I went forward at a vacation Bible school. But that wonderful, saving grace of God comes through the self-giving of Jesus. As it says, Jesus who gave himself 
for us. Look at it in the monitors, John chapter 1, verses 14. And speaking of Jesus, and it says the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through... Think Well, thank you, Dustin. Came through... Jesus Christ. No one, look at this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The wonderful grace of God has a face. And that face is Jesus. That's what he writes in Colossians. That Jesus is the visible expression or image of an invisible God. Do we want to know the wonderful grace of God? Then let me introduce you to Jesus. The self-giving one. So is grace cheap? No, it costs. We talked about that earlier. Grace was expensive. It cost Jesus his life. It cost him torture, physical torture. It cost him emotional torture and turmoil. Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel? And I recommend that book to you, by the way. It's a small book. I think I may have a copy I can lend. uh, But I would encourage you. It's a very inexpensive book. What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, in case you're writing that down. He writes, how can God have mercy on sinners without destroying justice? We understand that. What can it mean that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no man clears the guilty? That's Exodus 34, 7. How can the righteous and holy God justify the ungodly? That's what Paul has been answering. The answer is the gospel. But let me go on. For he writes... The answer to all these questions is found at the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' substitutionary death for his people, a righteous and holy God can justify the ungodly because in Christ's death, mercy and justice were perfectly reconciled. The curse was rightly executed, and we were mercifully saved. Grace comes through the self-giving of Christ. Amen. That's the power and the wonder of the grace of God. As we'll get into next week, Paul says, How can you leave such grace, man? What is wrong with you? And I'd have to ask the same thing. How about you? Have you left this grace? Are you just living in cheap grace, thinking it doesn't cost, that it's of your own, and that you determined it? Then you don't understand the wonderful grace of God. Because it comes from the will of God in which he chooses us and says it comes at a heavy price. The purpose God's grace 
is found at the end of verse 5. And that's to bring glory to himself when he writes, To whom be glory forever and ever. That's the proper response to God's wonderful grace of election. For verse 5 ends with one word. Amen. Amen means in truth, most certainly, or more quickly, so be it. It's important to view this doctrine of election in a way that we say, well, I reject it, and many do. Many coil at the sound of it. Many say, well, I don't want it to be about God. I don't, I don't want it to be His will. But what you and I should do, our response to this election is, so be it. So here's what I want to do as I bring this near an end. Here's what I want to bring. What should our response to the wonderful grace of God be? How can we respond differently than the Galatians? I want to share with you three things. How you and I ought to view this doctrine of election and the wonderful grace of God as found in the gospel. There's three ways to glorify God in our view of election. The first one is we need to see it as a comfort. We need to see it as a comfort. As Romans 8 says, In everything God works for good with those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. Many times we paint that with such a broad brush as if we apply it as if it's common grace. But that's not a common grace verse. That is a verse that is a promise to those that God has called. Not everything works good towards you. The end result of those who reject Christ is death and eternal punishment as the wrath of God is poured out on you. The promise is that everything that happens to those that are called by God is that everything that happens in your life has a purpose and it works not only to your good but for the glorification of God. Paul's point is to say that God has always acted for the good of those whom he called to himself. I had that conversation this uh, past week with one of our members. They've been bedridden for some time. And really there doesn't seem to be much hope that things will change. And trying to encourage her and read scripture, there are many platitudes that we try to say, right? But many times they're just as empty as what we say. Finally, I just read some prayer and we were praying with her and I had to say, now listen, this is what you need to understand. Is that what is happening to you is some of the consequences maybe of some of your decisions. But in the end, we must recognize that if we believe in a good, wise God, then this position in your life is a, not only in a good, wise decision, but it's God's best for you. Now, that's very difficult for you and I to understand. Because you and I, sometimes, right now, maybe here in your life, you are undergoing a struggle that you cannot understand. You're undergoing something that is just devastating your life and maybe your family. Maybe it's something that seems so powerful, it seems like it just continually hits you and drives you further and further in the ground. You feel like wily e. Coyote, and you feel like no matter what I grab, just when I taste victory, it blows up in my hand, or I find that I'm just in thin air and falling to the ground. For those 
that have submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ, let me tell you this. Wherever you are in your life right now, it's not only good and wise, but it's the best that God has for you. It is the best. It says, God looks off and says, what's the best thing that I can do? And God says, I'm going to take this. Now, how do you say that to someone who's suffering and never going to be able to walk again? How do you say that to a young girl who's suffering through leukemia or someone who is struggling in life? The fact that it's a comfort, that God's will is to choose this for us. And even that, it's by the grace of God I go. The second reason that way that we glorify God is as we view this doctrine, the grace of God, not only as a comfort, but as a reason to praise God. And that's what calls us to do. David, many times as he was writing his psalms, and he was lamenting his life, my enemies surround me. My life, I despair of life itself. It seemed as David himself struggled with depression and probably did in his type of life and what God has called him to. But yet he still sees himself as God's chosen king. But yet it was crushing him to the point that he had difficulty breathing and sometimes even despaired of God. Oh God, see, let me see you. Let me see victory. Let me see the way out. Maybe that's been your prayer. But what David always said in it, he says, even in this weakness, even in this despair, let my lips speak your praise. If you find yourself in a place that you do not like, in a place that is uncomfortable, in a place that is difficult and is painful, here's what you're to do. You're to praise God. Lord, help me get through it. Lord, thank you for watching over me. Lord, thank you for giving this to me. That seems odd, right? We like to thank God for all the good things. But isn't Job that said, should we receive good from God and not evil? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Anybody want to finish? Blessed be the name of the Lord. So as a comfort and as a reason to praise God. If we understand this doctrine of election this way, if we understand the gospel this way, God's grace this way, it diminishes any pride that you and I might feel if we thought that our salvation, if we thought that our goodness was due to something good in us or something for which we receive credit. For God gets the glory. So we can glorify God by seeing comfort or seeing beauty election as a comfort and as a reason to praise God and thirdly as an encouragement to evangelism and I think that's what's missing here in our services in our church is you and I are not encouraged to evangelize and I say that to my shame that I have not done that in my own life Paul says I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory, he says in 2 Timothy 2.10. He knows that God has chosen some people to be saved, and he sees this as an encouragement to preach the gospel, even if it means enduring great suffering. Election is Paul's guaranteed that there will be some success 
for his evangelism. For he knows that some of the people he speaks to will be part of the elect, and they will believe the gospel and will be saved. It's as somebody invited us to come fishing and says, I guarantee that you will catch some fish. They are hungry and they are waiting. For you and I, evangelism for us is not some type of uh, hunt in which it's fruitless. But it's guaranteed that if we're faithful in sharing the gospel, God will preordain those people to be there for us. And he will call and draw them to himself. That's the comfort and the glory and the doctrine of election of God's wonderful grace. The Galatians forgot this. And as we continue on, you and I are going to see this as Paul unwraps his defense of not only his ministry, but also the gospel of Christ. I pray, don't lose it. Maybe you truly haven't understood it for the first time. Maybe this is it. And maybe you need to see today that God has been calling you to repent of dead works, recognize there is no way that you can work your way to heaven. There's no way that you can make yourself right before God. If he were to stand before you today and say, why should I let you into my heaven? You would, you would bumble and fumble and say, well, I, because I'm good. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. God would just swipe you away and say, I don't know you. Or you might come and say, well, I did all these good works. I tithe. And God says, sorry, man, don't know you. If you recognize that that's your stance and you're ready to turn and trust in what Christ has done and that God looks at the works of Jesus and says, I'll accept that for him. And you would say, I want to commit now to following Christ. I give it all up. I'm ready to see Christ as treasurable. I follow you. That's the wonderful grace of the gospel. Is there any of you here that are ready to do that today? You just raise your hand. The Bible tells us with the mouth, confession is made. It doesn't need to be go up to an altar. You don't need anything special. You just say, I'm ready to trust in him. I'm ready to walk in there. Let us come side by side and begin to disciple you and show you how you can do that. Is anyone ready to do so? I implore you, see the wonderful grace of Jesus. It's greater than anything you can imagine. I pray that God will work in your heart. And let me talk to the believer. You may be here and you say, yeah, I have that. But you've forgotten the wonderful grace of God. You've been walking and you've been living the poor me's in a pity party. Let me tell you, Jesus has something wonderful. You, God has something wonderful. Your calling, the grace and peace, your rightness with God, your penalty from the sin of death, and also the freedom to walk Outside the power of sin is the wonderful grace of God. Walk in it, enjoy it, swim in it. Let it express itself in words of praise and gratitude and glory. Let it be so, Lord. I'd like to end with one of my favorite hymns. I know I say this all the time about hymns, but this is definitely one of my favorite. It's called The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. I won't sing it for you, I'll spare you that. This is The Wonderful Grace of Jesus greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free for the wonderful God or wonderful grace of Jesus rescues me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. 
wonderful grace, all sufficient for me, broader than the scope of my transgression, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Anyone know how it ends? Praise His name. Father, let us do so this morning. Thank you for the wonderful gospel and grace of, of, of God. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord, may it be life-changing. May we see our calling. May we see the life-giving um, uh, expression of the Spirit in our lives. Father, let us not be dead to the gospel and to your grace. And Father, may we not set it aside as some plaything that no longer needed. But Lord, let us embrace it. Let us dress ourselves into it. Let us swim in it. Let us drown ourselves in it. In the fact that with that grace, Father, by your will, you have chose us, chose us to yourself that we may glorify you. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.